Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science the Podcast. The next up in our special COVID-19 series where we're communicating with um, our listeners around what's going on uh, nearby and far away um, and everything in between that we might use to, to get better and better. Um, we know that there's still a lot of effort out there to slow the spread of the virus um, in the U.S., locally and, and uh, nationally, as well as around the world. Um, th- the same holds true. The, there's an incredible amount of science going on, of course, around the whole issue, around the virus and its uh, infection rates. Um, but hand hygiene, distance, masking, and cleaning still seem to be the big four. Um, you know, we're trying to avoid the spray, trying not to onboard uh, an infectious dose and certainly not a, a large infectious dose um, and maintain our own health and um, hydration and so forth so that if we do take on board uh, a dose, then uh, we're better able to, to handle it quickly and, um, and get back going. So um, we know that the, but it's affecting any and everything around the world um, that we do as humans. And so we want to maintain that. I know, too, that all of us are looking for reliable data. That's tough at any time and and very tough now. Um, I think the best advice uh, that we can all get and give is looking at context. Everything we do, we always want to understand context. Um, And and it's no different with the COVID-19 infection coming from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that is you know, what's the context? How many people are infected? Um, and particularly if there are tests going on and there's more and more testing going on all the time, um, what is the actual infection rate of tests? Who, how many are testing positive? We know there's some are false positives. We know some are, are false negatives, type one or two errors. They're occurring, but the context, the rates, um, hospital admit, admission rates, um, the ICU within a hospital admission rates, and of course, uh, tragically, fatality rates. And uh, But those fatalities that are um, caused by COVID, the patient died of COVID, uh, not died with COVID. And these things will take, unfortunately, years and even decades to sort out. But as practitioners and trying to get a grasp on how do we do things, do them right, or at least the best we can. And we know the science is iterative and ongoing. Uh, I know it makes it difficult for all of us to uh, understand that. And and I had heard an interesting concept by the uh, hotel um, security experts and how they working with um, virologists and uh, bacteriologists and others, um, but looking at the difference between cleaning and then at a higher level sanitizing and then yet the highest level disinfecting through UVC and uh, other techniques that are out there. Um, And I just had the opportunity to fly for the first time in over six months um, uh, to Charlotte to see my new uh, grandbaby's first birthday, little baby Lily. Um, But it was interesting. The Charlotte airport was absolutely uh, packed with people. Most 
who knows, 60, 80% seemed to have their mask on. A percentage of those didn't know how to do it. It was upside down or didn't cover their nose and so forth. But I think by us maintaining that distance um, and trying to uh, think outside our own, our own heads, our own skulls, and understand that um, if we wash our hands, distance ourselves, and try and reduce the spray from our mouths and nose, um, and then vice versa, you know, we really can keep somebody that's very vulnerable from getting sick or worse. Um, and so that's, that's part of what's happening now. At LPRC, we maintain the landing page uh, for COVID-19 so that any practitioner anywhere in the world can go on there at no charge and look up the latest information from credible sources um, as science emerges and the practical implications, the translation of that science to practice is there. Um, we continue to do the same uh, with the uh, civil unrest that's led to incredible violence and um, theft and looting. Um, now we're seeing some transition to personal attacks on individuals. Um, the masks uh, do seem to provide, uh, as we all thought, um, a way to try and anonymize an offender, embolden somebody to uh, launch an attack that might not have otherwise done so uh, in a store, on, in a parking lot, on the street, uh, and so in the park and so forth. So um, uh, from there, we transitioned to the R3 we're doing here at LPRC, the rapid response research um, that was designated by the LPRC Innovate Advisory Panel. Um, with MASK, again, the updates, we continue two uh, online research projects that will transition to in-store and parking lot with uh, MASK, where one, we're looking, of course, at the anonymization and what we can do to train people to understand and look for other traits of a specific person so that we might deter them as well as um, at least be able to document and identify them later uh, so that maybe we can ultimately reduce offending, victimizing by others uh, that are using those masks. So we're looking at that research, uh, we're conducting that research to look for uh, practical actions and at the same time looking at different mask options um, that might help do two things. Again, comfort or at least provide some confidence. We know this is all about confidence, getting back into stores, back out there and interacting, safely interacting with others. Um, and that's going to be that, that their uh, fear of being infected or passing on an infection to a, a vulnerable person is reduced. So different masks perform differently in that way. So we're looking at that in the confidence is that retailer and their employee taking their health seriously or not? And so does the type of mask that, re that retail employee is wearing um, as they interact with, the, with them, with the shopper, um, affect their perception and their likelihood to go back there or allow their loved one to shop in that location? Um, that could be critical to a retailer now and, and who knows for how long or, or when it happens again. Um, at the same time, we're trying to see do what mask type might reduce intimidation of others um, because it is different to deal with a, a set of eyes without the nose and mouth. Um, and this goes through the evolutionary biology of the brain. So looking at those, we're, we uh, now are really leveraging some pretty, pretty cool technology, uh, Matterport and virtual reality, looking at signage, what it should look like, where it should go, how often it should change. Um, to affect behavior, particularly right now, not just buying behavior, but of course, uh, reducing hazardous behavior. So um, that's really neat. And uh, the retailer we're working most strongly with that right now is uh, Luxottica Sunglass Hut and looking at ways to, particularly in the smaller um, 
locations like that, the interior space is smaller. So what, what seems to work to message uh, based on the science they're getting on spacing requirements um, to reduce uh, somebody on the likelihood of somebody onboarding an infectious or even a serious dose. Um, we're doing working at curbside uh, at the Home Depot now, uh, using a parking lot, looking at options. That's uh, just now getting ready to initiate. Um, and then we've got two other retailers that are will be next up uh, where we're looking at different types of retailers and uh, optimal ways, again, to conduct curbside more safely, both from an infection and from a, a car versus human um, standpoint uh, to maintain safety as well as looking at uh, efficiency. So uh, stay tuned on, on those uh, R3 initiatives. Likewise, uh, we've now are underway with our producer, Kevin Tran, and one of our uh, um, contract team members um, working on options for uh, parking lot surveillance to protect and, and provide confidence to uh, our customers, employees, and delivery people um, using the live view. And so we've got options or versions of the live view. So we're looking at dosing options there. Um, stay tuned for that. Uh, HazardNet, the artificial intelligence uh, program that we're working on with uh, University of Florida engineering and computer science faculty, as well as uh, Malong executives and others where we're looking at how do we best um, inference or detect uh, hazardous behavior in places and spaces. Um, and then how, how will we generate alerts? And then how do we train employees to help uh, deconflict? Maybe it might be securing an area that's been tampered with or, or likely infected. Um, how, do, how might we um, sanitize or uh, that area immediately? So we're back in action. Um, and so stay tuned. Uh, myself and two faculty that are engineering and computer science also uh, have a, a grant opportunity. We've got one grant on the hazard net AI. Um, now we're looking also at leveraging AI and robotics. Um, and so we're getting ready to tie in with one retailer, a major uh, company on that, as well as using the robotics lab here at UF and smart machines and then leveraging LPRC's engagement lab to go and start to trial different uh, robotics types, those that are commercially available, those that are being developed here at University of Florida. Um, and then finally on Operation SafeCord, another NSF grant we just received, we had our first planning call yesterday. And that's where we're looking at the greater community, what we call zone five, and then how it interfaces with four, in this case, looking at the city of Gainesville and the University of Florida. Here you've got two somewhat separate entities that, that are physically and geographically co-located, uh, clearly, um, but how do you fuse good information from uh, traffic information to license plate reader data, um, uh, the camera data, uh, audio data, uh, uh, data from apps um, that people opt into and other, otherwise, so that you can create much more uh, efficient but much safer um, areas, um, particularly areas if we can look at females first, if we can keep her safe and feeling safe, that's the highest bar. Um, and so we can make, we can, if we can achieve that in a, in a greater way. So stay tuned on Operation Safe, Safe Court. Um, we're, so in that case, again, it's all, all this is about micro moments and helping shape perception and behavior in that way and a lot of different stimulus uh, options that we've got. Impact coming up. That first week in October, we're very excited. Right now 
it's going to be all virtual. Um, the normal 12 sessions that we have at any impact conference, four main stage, uh, eight learning lab breakouts, uh, though that content's already identified, data collected, as I've mentioned before, uh, heavy planning, getting ready to start record, working on uh, platform options and optimizing that, working with others that are doing online and virtual um, lessons learned. Kevin's working on the technical side. Kenneth Carlson, our uh, research team leader on the content, leading that effort. Uh, Jesse on the logistics side. Uh, and so um, stay tuned on impact, but it's now registration is now live. Anyone, anyone can participate in uh, impact 2020. Um, that first week in October, go to lpresearch.org. Uh, you'll not only see the COVID and the uh, riot and looting landing pages, but you'll see, of course, 2020 impact and how to get involved in that. There will, we're planning as of right now, an in-person experience uh, for um, the strategy at component. And that's for the number ones and twos in the APLP pyramid. Um, uh, we're, we don't think we can provide an in-person experience for impact. The door's not slammed. We're seeing if there's a way for those that are uh, really excited to just interact with other humans to come into impact. Uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback. People are really were excited to come into Gainesville and interact, but you know, we've got to go with what the CDC and of course what UF says around that. Um, and so we're planning for all virtual now, but stay tuned on that working groups, full speed ahead. Uh, all seven working groups have very busy agendas. So with no further ado, let me go over to uh, my colleague, uh, Tom Meehan, and we'll go from there. Thanks, Reed. Thanks for the recap. I'm going to talk a little bit and um, try not to be repetitive, but I know Reed mentioned some of these things. I'm going to talk a little bit about the civil unrest and some of the numbers that are now coming out. Uh, and I would say that uh, a lot of this is very, very early information. Some of it is early as reported yesterday, so I'm sure it'll change. But we'll start with uh, Minnesota, who actually changed their testing guidelines after the protest. Pre-protest, um, they would only test people that were symptomatic. And as everybody probably is aware, every state and even in-state municipalities have different uh, guidelines of their testing protocols. So Minnesota did do testing after um, the protests, uh, basically, um, I, would, I would take this information for what it's worth in the sense that it is still relatively new, um, but the testing criteria changed post-protests in Minnesota, which are basically allowed to test anybody. Uh, they tested 8,500 folks that attended mass gatherings. Um, they're, they're classifying mass gatherings because they didn't want to kind of rule out what type of protest it was. And out of that uh, 8,500 that was tested, uh, among them, less than 1% tested positive, just shy of 1%. And I think it's important to note that um, we don't, uh, although that is factual information, we don't have specific numbers on total numbers of pro protesters, total numbers of people in the area, law enforcement, and so on and so forth. But um, it is an indication that the states are responding to that. Uh, another important note is that um, the vast majority of uh, demonstrators that were there were wearing masks. The, actually, the state health department handed out over 50,000 masks uh, and to community organizers and during these protests. So uh, before the, the protests turned uh, into the more violent or riot situations, the municipalities did a very good job of trying to hand out masks and educating people on the importance of it. Um, 
somewhat of an interesting theory of, you know, thinking about giving protesters masks, uh, uh, you know, as a different kind of school of thought than what we would have done uh, years ago, if, if everybody recalls during the Ferguson riots, uh, most folks would be arrested if they had a mask. Most municipalities pre-COVID had um, no mask rules during gatherings uh, for safety reasons. So this changes the, the concept. I think more information will become available, but it's, it's interesting to take those numbers and really look. Um, as of last week, there were 20 states that had particularly alarming climbing numbers, um, 11 with extremely high numbers uh, around the Sun Belt and, and the West. So still a lot of information out there. There's a lot of speculation of why this is occurring, where those states are particularly um, uh, high numbers in Arizona, Florida, Nevada, Oregon, Texas. Uh, they reported the largest one-day peaks um, in, you know, in, in the whole entire ordeal. So I think it's very important to watch that as we open states. Um, I think California, Los Angeles, at least in California, had a, an optional mask, and then they went to a mandated mask last week. So some of the, some states are kind of retooling, as well as Texas, uh, Dallas and Texas, not all of Texas, issued a, a retail mask requirement uh, as early as last week. So very, very fluid information. I think it's important for all of us uh, to really keep track of what's occurring. Um, and I think, you know, I could be wrong on this, I think you'll see retailers in some areas taking a different stance where masks are optional and trying to influence folks. I know in New York, New Jersey, uh, when I have been traveling that uh, there is a lot of signage uh, of the requirement. It is a requirement, but to Reed's point earlier, um, I find it interesting how many people wear the masks incorrectly. Um, and sometimes I'm certainly sure that there's uh, a challenge with understanding how the masks work and other times uh, masks are becoming a fashion statement where um, they're very colorful, they have things on them. Um, and then I've seen people with zipper compartments in the middle so they can drink through them. So as, as that occurs, uh, it encourages bas bad mask habits. And I think that that's one of the challenges. Switching gears, um, this is going to start to get more light as the news is starting to come up on it. It was heavily reported uh, that Android and Apple both created a contract uh, trace feature inside their operating system. Basically what it was, was behind the scenes when you did an update, this would um, de-identify de information to allow municipalities and the Center for Disease Control to identify where people were during mass gatherings and um, run through. This is starting to get some scrutiny under the fact that you now have data being collected. Both, it, it, you, this feature can be turned off. It is opted on by default. And both Apple and Andrew have very, very strict guidelines around what they will do with the information. They both kind of said that they're not going to release this information to law enforcement or for any other reason except for contract tracing. But if you're someone that's concerned with privacy, you may want to take a look at that settings. It is allowing uh, you know, corporate organizations to track your every movement. And um, if you're a very, very privacy conscious person, have all of your all of your geolocation services turned off, this is on by default with a, a recent update. So there were three or four news articles over the weekend talking about the potential of misuse with that information. I'm not suggesting or, or 
uh, think, uh, thinking that that's occurring today, but it is another data point where people are tracking it, as well as it also drains your battery. So if you're a battery guy, it's something that to keep in mind. Um, I personally have mine on. I think that um, I'd want to be notified. Uh, you know, I'm very cognizant of other folks. I'm not in a high risk, but I do interact with a lot of people and don't want to get other people sick. Uh, we talked a lot about credit card fraud uh, over the last few weeks, and so I, because I spoke so much about it, I won't speak too much on it today, but the FTC released a report. Um, they had an additional 63,000 reports of fraud. More than half of them were consumer reports of credit card fraud. So a um, little bit hard to get exact numbers from the FTC on what that means. Uh, they, they reported a significant un, uh, uptick in credit card fraud. Um, as we discussed on this podcast and actually on many other conversations, uh, there are retailers that went from having a very, very low penetration of credit card transactions, in some cases less than 20% to 90% overnight. Um, this is obviously a concern and opens up the door for credit card fraud, and we're now, now starting to see those numbers. It's important to note that um, if we really think about it, although coronavirus and COVID feels like it's been months and months, uh, your traditional chargeback process takes about 60 days. So you would you are now at 90 days into this are going to now see an influx of, of, of chargebacks. And again, it will be overinflated because you have retailers with decline sales and sales in a different channel. So it's something to certainly keep an eye on. Um, and I would urge the listeners to look at your risk portfolio related to credit card fraud and make sure that your rules and, and um, your stop gaps are set uh, to deal with this influx. As stores open, um, your online channel will probably still pretty be pretty strong. Uh, another really interesting thing in the news, and I think this is some of the things with the civil unrest, the election, and, uh, and COVID gets a little bit lost in some of the headlines, but Australia... Uh, has had the largest state-sponsored cyber attack in history. This is really important because this means that there is another nation-state actor attacking. Um, uh, and Australia has taken a very interesting uh, position on this where they've, they're not uh, willing to really discuss the details. So when these state-sponsored attacks happen, uh, it relatively quickly you can identify where they're coming from. There have been a, there's been a ton of speculation, whether it be China, North Korea, um, Iran, there are only really uh, four or five uh, countries that have the capability to really do a good, um, a, a really sophisticated state-based cyber attack. But it's important that while we are dealing with all of these other things that are occurring globally, um, we become vulnerable to some of these types of attacks because we cannot focus on everything. Uh, it is just a reality of what occurs. And Australia did have a, a, you know, a different kind of take on COVID but this is a, a very, very alarming uh, statistic that's out there. There are two other unconfirmed or unsubstantiated reports. One is related to India. The other is related to Singapore um, that have, have similar but not as large. This is a total state-based attack that attacked all of Australia's infrastructure. And the report, the early reporting indicated that it was every system uh, from utility to government to military. The later reports actually... Um, said it was a much broader attack than anything related to the government was attacked. Uh, there hasn't been real clear information of what that attack has yielded, what what, what occurred. But again, it, it's just a reminder that the world is still uh, spinning and there are still the same type of things that go on. And if we are not focused on protecting ourselves, it, 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 we are at risk. 
furthermore, Amazon actually reported the largest denial of service attack in history. Um, they were able to fort it off and, uh, and fight it. But again, this just goes to remind folks that as we're dealing with all of the craziness and the things that are going on, cyber criminals and um, criminals in general are taking advantage. And if you think of things like the largest, when you hear the largest uh, state-based attack in history, the largest denial of service attack in history, um, this is uh, concerning because Amazon, obviously, and we would think theoretically has some of the best protection in the globe and they were able to afford off this attack. What if, um, what if it affected uh, a more, uh, I don't know, a global retailer or even a US based retailer that's mid-sized that doesn't have the protection methodology that Amazon has um, and state sponsored attacks um, do not, do not need to be uh, on nations, they can be uh, and are often corporate driven. Um, so uh, whether it's to steal intellectual property, to cause disruption for financial impact, it, it, these things occur to both the public and private sector. And, and arguably they occur to the private sector more than the public sector um, because uh, there's a more financial gain and less attention to it. So uh, as I say, always stay vigilant, but it's just a, a stark reminder that all of these things, that while we have all of these crazy things going on, the world still has the same things occurring. There are two wars. Uh, there's a potentially a war around oil. Um, and then there's a third very smaller uh, issue in versus China and India. While all of these things are occurring, we're still, we're still in the same world that we were prior. So definitely put a mask on, but don't forget to make sure that we're still keeping cognizant of the things that occurred pre-COVID are still occurring post-COVID. Uh, and that goes the same with the civil unrest. You know, uh, It's important to stay on top of those things. Over to Tony. Thank you very much, Tom and uh, Reed for the great updates. And talking to the mask actually here in Greenville, South Carolina, the city council this week just made it mandatory that when you walk into a supermarket, you must wear a mask. So it's still top of mind in many, many communities. As I know, we have uh, multiple members in the LPRC that are global. I'm gonna just, today I'm gonna share a little bit of data in terms of how retail sales are doing in key countries around the world. I'll start in Europe. Uh, Germany sales were down six and a half percent, but that's actually an improvement on the forecast of, of them being down nearly 15%. France, re, France retail sales were down 31% in April versus the previous year. UK uh, retail sales were down 8.9%. What's interesting about the UK, they are probably one of the highest online penetration in terms of um, online sales. Nearly 31% of, of retail sales in the UK are online. Uh, Italy retail sales were down 26% through April. Spain's were down nearly 32% through April. China, Again, it's showing that the recovery is starting. Their sales were just down 2.8% in May, and that's an improvement from April when they were down 7.5%. Japan was down 11.5% in April. South Korea, it turned the corner. Uh, they actually got the COVID-19 under control, and their retail sales were actually up 3.9%. Brazil, was down nearly 17%, Colombia down uh, 43% year to date. That's, that's the most shocking number. The latest forecast um, from IHL in terms of what the US will do this year is that US retail sales will be down 
7.6%, and this is a very recent forecast just from uh, June 18th. Uh, interesting to me this week that we are starting to feel more comfortable or we have a, some more of a greater sense of, of safety of going back uh, to normal. So the Statista reported that 41% felt comfortable going out to eat, and that's up from 18% just six weeks ago. Going on vacation, we're nearing 40% already, and then that was about less than 20% six weeks ago. And that same percentage actually applies to malls. So we're 40% more likely to go to malls. Going to the movies, though, is still very low, 23%. And going outside the country, that was the lowest, it's 12%. Uh, mask usage, uh, it's interesting, it is improving, but not as much as I would have thought in some of the key countries that have been hard hit. So in April in China, 81% were all the people wearing masks, that dropped to 78% in May. For the US, it was 39% in April, it was 66% in May. For Germany, it was 16% in April and 52% in May. And the shock was the UK, it was 13% in April, only 20% in May, and they're one of the hardest uh, hit European countries. Where are the cases actually growing the fastest right now in terms of countries? The top five are Brazil, Russia, India, Peru, and Chile. Going back to some of the comments that Reed made about curbside, I actually was on a, on a webinar with a Harvard cons retail consortium yesterday and curbside is getting a lot of attention, but one of the major retailers that actually was speaking saying that it was very successful during the pandemic and then plan on continuing uh, curbside the orders. In fact, curbside orders increased 208% during the pandemic and 59% of consumers uh, plan on like it and wanted to continue post, post the pandemic. Online retail sales grew 50% at the peak uh, and then I'll close with why uh, some great data as to why I think even though we're all going online and doing stuff online, stores are really going to continue to be a very critical part of the retail formula. Opening a physical store increases the traffic of a company's website by 27%. Digitally native brands are planning to open nearly a thousand stores by 2023. So in other words, all these uh, companies that only have online presence for retail, they're all trying to open retail stores. And that's true with Amazon and actually for a lot of the other online brands. 55% of online shoppers prefer to buy from a retailer that has a physical store presence. Trying items in a physical store is 3X more influencer, influential than other purchase factors. And 40% of shoppers use retail therapy as a way to calm down. So 40% of us need to go to the store to just get some therapy and calm down, which was interesting. And finally, just in closing, um, there's a new blog that just came out this week that actually has the latest economic and re retail forecast, which I'll make available also to the COVID-19 LPRC site. So with that, over to read. All right, thank you very much, Tony. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, and Kevin Tran, our producer. Um, so to everybody out there, you know, uh, avoid the spray and help others stay healthy. Um, it's it's uh, the best we can do and it's what we need to do. Um, 
But uh, please, any questions, comments, and, and of course, suggestions about how we might shape and better shape uh, Crime Science, the podcast, to, to enable you and your teams to get better and better. We're here for you. Um, always operations at lpresearch.org. Uh, and the website, again, is that lpresearch.org. Um, so from Gainesville, and again, thanks to my colleagues and everybody stay safe. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.